0: Had I not gone through everything, I would never have gotten here. If I had tried to just put up with my gender dysphoria, what hope would I have with anything would be different? Therapy was, I begged my therapist, help me be content living as a guy. And I just kept getting worse. I put myself under the care of pastor after pastor after pastor, including one of the most prominent theologians in the Missouri Synod, Who contacted me and said, Hey, I'd like to help. Well, he had no help. He just wanted me to identify with my baptismal identity. Mm. And I just said, I said, I do. I don't deny that. You're not hearing me. That's not the problem. And I just kept getting used. So I believe I had to go through all of that to get here.
1: Hello, friends. Welcome back to the Protect Your Noggin podcast. Today's show is really an important one to me. And I know it is important to Stacy as well. It's an opportunity for us to carry out this ongoing conversation that we've been trying to have this season with friends old and new. And this show is a very interesting one because it ties us back to a conversation that was very important in my own life and, and journey along with others in my life at Friends and Family. Uh, and it was a conversation that took place several years ago in Indiana with an old podcast that I did with Dan Van Voris, that is Virtue in the Wasteland. We traveled, Dan and I, out to Indiana to interview Gina Eilers, trans woman we were interviewing, who we had hoped to hear from so that we could both understand better what it's like for somebody to experience gender dysphoria within conservative Christian contexts, but also to be able to understand how the church was ministering to Eilers and the family and the ways in which those difficult subjects could be navigated. Unfortunately, it didn't go the way we had expected. By the time we went out and actually conducted the interview, um, Gina Eilers was uh, not really able to connect up with the congregation where we were, were hoping to have a, a, a little bit more conversation with the pastors there. And in fact, uh, this became a very politically sensitive topic. It actually created some, some heat for me professionally. Certainly there were uh, folks that got pretty frustrated with that old podcast. Some people wanted us to take it down, but we we stuck with it. And I really believe that over the years, I've heard from many students and, and church workers that it was a helpful conversation because it didn't fit any paradigm perfectly. It didn't perfectly fit the narrative of what we might call the left or the right in terms of Christians navigating gender dysphoria and and in fact transitioning. Well, the story gets even more complicated, takes twists and turns, hence the title of Eiler's book, As Greg Eiler's, A Roller Coaster Through a Hurricane, One Wild Ride, My Journey with Gender Identity. From the author name there, you can see that Gina has detransitioned back to Greg. So we sit down today to talk with Greg and Greg's long-suffering wife, Julie, who's also an excellent editor, as it turns out, so that turned out to be very helpful for the, the last couple books that Eilers was able to write, but we sit down and have a, a wonderful conversation with uh, my wife, Stacy, Greg, and Julie, and we talk through some of those, those poignant and difficult, but also healing ways in which they've been able to understand a little bit more uh, about the, the complexities of the ways in which uh, or the complexities related to uh, how hormones can affect people's uh, well-being, their, their identity, their um, ability to, to live healthy and happy lives in the world. It is a, a heavy conversation, but also one that uh, delights us because again, as we're looking to friends old and new, it was great to be able to catch up with the Islers, and to see how they're doing these days, and see what they've learned, and we're passing that on to you, friends. These are, yes, lessons in outfoxing religious wolves, but today, this isn't so much about the religious wolves. This is about finding healing for those uh, those folks who are within the context of a faith community, don't want to leave it, Don't really want to shake off the doctrinal parts of it, but want to be able to help people really address this topic of transgender um, experience and identity, and and most importantly, the way that, that families and churches can help rather than harm people that are experiencing gender dysphoria. Again, it's an important topic. This isn't the end of the conversation, but it's a great place to continue it. Thanks for being with us, friends. Let's go.
0: All ahead, one third. All ahead, one third. Aye, aye. Stand by to dive. Diving stations. Dive. Dive. Uh,
2: <laughs> welcome, friends, to the Protect Your Noggin podcast. We offer lessons in outfoxing religious wolves, and sometimes we will address emotionally difficult subjects, so make sure you pay careful attention to our descriptions of each of the episodes, and then also have some resources handy, such as the Crisis Text Line, that's one of our favorites, which is 741-741, that's 741-741. Now, just take a deep breath, because we're not afraid to go deep, but don't worry, because we'll also have some fun along the way. Our plan is to help us all resurface with insights and tools to help heal ourselves and our communities. So come along, because we got this.
1: Three, three, zero, three.
0: see you
1: yeah really good, good to see, see you. you too i'm so glad that you took the the saturday to, to chat with us but i think it's such an important conversation and i was so delighted because the other day i said i wonder what happened with Eilers. let me check back in on islers and you had two books and
0: i wonder they've been wondering all these all these years it's been four and a half years yeah that's right, yeah, right. in our living room yeah so i've wondered different times i wondered if they paid any attention at all to the roller coaster we continue yeah. to be on
1: no and so and when I when I read it a couple things stood out first of all uh did not expect where that thing was going to go you say it's a roller coaster it's a roller coaster and kind of a twisty ride I don't know um I love the line of course though where where you you describe yourself as a chrysalis on a roller coaster going into a hurricane and uh, oh was that was that Julie <laughs> Julie I going to start with you because um, I mean, of course, uh, you know you're you're a really amazing part of this story. But you also had to edit this book, and and maybe we could start by just asking you what was it like emotionally to have to kind of go through, and and, and kind of rehash a lot of these things in print. I know Stacey's had to do that yeah, on occasion. It can be editing. tough. What was that like for you?
3: Um, I am the quintessential professional when it comes to grammar, punctuation, and dangling participles, and not so, too many adjectives. <laughs> I can uh, ninja adge- excess adjectives, and adverbs out of a, a, a manuscript like you would not believe. So, but well, um, my manuscript is the point. It's just, just that one. <laughs> and, um, so it was uh, it was relatively easy to compartmentalize.
1: Mm. It, <laughs> clinical. You're
3: gonna gonna view this.
1: Do you think that might have helped, though? I mean, it's like in, in a certain sense, because you could put it into words. I know a lot of people journaling can be very therapeutic, but now you're editing somebody else's journaling, or was it just work?
0: <laughs> Everything about our marriage for her is just
3: work. No, 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 no.
2: If only I can build for my time, right? <laughs>
3: <laughs> um, I'm not sure if you're aware. I have a journalism background. Yeah. So I have uh, been around the uh, the block a few times when it comes to to editing, and um, and and I also teach with my with my work. So I have I I had the ability and to just step back and see how how is this going to be viewed? How is a reader you know, perceiving this or or taking
1: this? Well, I'll tell you, it was very clean. I read a lot of books and I was thinking, all right, that is, that is an asset to have in the house. But how about you, Greg? I mean, this is not an easy story for a lot of people um, to have gone through, let alone document it and and put it out to the world. That's a, that's a heavy amount of vulnerability. How was the process for you emotionally?
0: And I'm a real emotional person far more than Julie and far more emotional for having gone through all of this. And you know, in 2013, when I started with a therapist, and I was having trouble sleeping through the night, and I would wake up at 3 a.m. the the witching hour, right, 3 a.m. Yeah. Yeah. and my brain would just be on fire. And my therapist said, "Write." You know, mm-hmm. he knew I write sermons. He says, "You're a writer. Write it down." Yeah. Well, I never got up once. But what I would do is rehearse what I was thinking about, and then in the morning I would write it down. I thought so many times, especially when I, to get to your question, Jeff, what I was going through as I was putting the book together. So I went back to this stuff that I wrote at the time and I couldn't believe the amount of detail. Yeah. And and three and four years after the fact, how much stuff I forgot. And sometimes I would just ball. The pain would just be refreshed, right? Just fly into the front of my head. And, and, and I would just sit there and bawl and then get back at it. And I know it was worth it. It's a story. People need to tell their stories. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I remember on Donahue when I was a kid and I would hear some of these stories and I'd go like, I identify with that. And This person's not embarrassed for telling this embarrassing thing. Mm. And yet I wouldn't want anyone to ever know. But when you have the ability to be out there with people, you got to tell your story because it helps people. And so many people have gotten into contact with me through both of the books. So, yeah, it's pretty mostly gut-wrenching and, and yet also terribly fulfilling.
2: And when you say the people that have um, gotten in contact with you from the book, like from what perspective are they coming at? Like I'm probably all over, <laughs> right? But
0: All over the place. I've had pastors get a hold of me, uh, that they have a member Uh, or they have a kid. Uh, I've had a number of pastors who have a a teenage or young adult uh, child who is identifying as transgender um, or some who just wanted to learn more. I have with the second book, especially I thought I was writing. Initially, I thought I was writing the second book, Ministering to Transgender Christians. Um, I thought I was writing it to pastors. First, I thought I was writing it to Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod pastors, my Mm -hmm. church model. And then I thought I was just writing to Lutheran pastors. Then I thought I was writing to pastors. Then I thought I was writing it just to any kind of church worker. but And guess who I'm hearing from more than anything? Moms of mm. trans youth. Christian moms yeah. of yeah. trans youth. Uh, and then I hear from trans folks. So just across the board, anybody who's gotten in touch with I heard from a man who is an actor in New York City who found my blog a few years ago. Um, He's Missouri Synod in Mm -hmm. New York City and and he's traditional by the book doctor wise. And uh, he, he emailed me a couple of months ago that he had found my book and read it and he just, Loved it and was so thankful I wrote it. There's one I never thought I would hear from. Mm. Of course, I asked him to find a screenwriter for the movie.
1: But <laughs> <laughs> hey, no, that's not too far off. That's not too far off at all. Because, I mean, I mean, I'm mean, i sure one of the things that that's really good about the book, and we should give the full title, A Roller Coaster Through a Hurricane, or that's the first part of it, uh, 2019. I love how you, you dedicate it, it's so beautiful, to all who have been cast out. And the reason that was so heavy, I mean, before I even started it, I realized that, you know, your story, whether you know it or not, is a really important part of our story, right? <laughs> and uh, Stacy's never met you, right? right you right? didn't go out.
2: <laughs> but but
1: in, in so many ways, you um, being vulnerable with us on the Virtue and the, po- uh, on the Wasteland podcast a while back opened up a conversation with so many of my Concordia students and people in our networks. And it wasn't just about It wasn't just about transgender issues. It was about taking people seriously and hearing people's pain when we kind of find ourselves in the church world. It's not just a Lutheran kind of thing, but we find ourselves so often in the church world teaching people to deny what their experience is. And your almost, you know, I would say radical ability in your narrative to be able to just Lay it out there without worrying about the left or the rights uh, censuring of it. Right. It's like you're not trying to speak to a political ideology. You're speaking truth and you're speaking on behalf of people who are suffering and don't really have a way sometimes to be able to get what's going on with them uh, explained. So once that started, it was really, really big for us because so many students then would would come and talk to us, and then eventually Stacy. That really, this podcast is in in some ways kind of an outgrowth of the conversation that started because of uh, you being able to to speak out. Now, just to reset the the audience, because this a lot of people will be hearing this for the new time.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um,
1: oh, and I should say, I should say, you know, when I first met you, both I uh, was kind of jet lag we flew out from california to indiana and on essentially as we were booking the flight and getting out there we originally had expected to actually have a discussion with you and clergy about how to minister to families with transgender members and then it changed (laughs) then it was just us and at one point, my friend Dan said, uh, "You know, you're always so nervous. You know, you're always so nervous about, uh, you know, the politics of things." I said, "Dan, I'm not nervous like I'm scared. I'm, I'm, scared. I'm just, I'm, um, I'm it's okay. It's, um, it's that, uh, it's hard for me to say to my own people to repent." And interestingly, when I then I kind of lost my cool. It was the part I, I wasn't necessarily sure of, <laughs> but I, I lost recall. my cool at some point and said, "You know, hey, repent." <laughs> because the church has too long been taking people's uh, lives as abstractions and they're not treating people as people well i didn't realize how many important people to be frank thought i was talking directly to them the guilty flea when none pursue i was to be honest i was primarily talking about really mean-spirited bloggers and those guys are you know twitter people or whatever that's there's trolls out there, but a lot of a lot of clergy and 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 church leaders thought I was kind of talking about them, and maybe I should have been. Uh, but ultimately, it it got me in a little bit of trouble. I wouldn't say a little bit. I mean, it was it threatened my job to literally just interview you. Uh, people were calling, you know, uh, you know, saying, "Hey, you got to get rid of this guy just for having the conversation." And I think. Um, and and refusing to back down from that has been helpful because what it said to a lot of young people who, ha, who come at these issues from various, various, you know, uh, perspectives. I mean, they, you know, but they they said, ah, it is really nice to think that there are at least a few people that are just not going to uh, be silenced. And the per, the persistence and I will say now the persistence that you both have demonstrated on this issue, you could have just gone away and evaporated from public consciousness, but I'm so glad you didn't. Mm -hmm. Now let's go back to your childhood real briefly. You experienced gender dysphoria at an early age. It was one of those classical experiences, but what did that feel like? Can you kind of just give us a snapshot of that childhood experience?
0: Before I forget, I have to say to what you're just saying, Mm. that you and Dan were willing to speak to us, Mm. first of all. And then we have this long th- three-part, I think. The only three it was parts. really long. It's like the longest podcast we've ever done, yeah. And foolishly
1: edited nothing out of Yeah, it. no, nothing. <laughs>
0: um, and then you came to our house for it. And then, to me, this has always been the most important thing. No one should have heard throughout that whole time anything Julie and I said that didn't match up as Christian, Christian doctrine. right. And everything I write in both of my books, everything I put in my blog, there's been zero people who have challenged me on my doctrine. They might not like the topic, Mm -hmm. but they cannot find in us people who hold errant doctrine, who have caved into ideas to make things fit their their new perspective they're now sharing with the world. Mm -hmm. So going back to being, as a kid, this was of the most importance to me. I was brought up Roman Catholic. Um, and, and be a good boy, Greg. And my grandma thought I should become a priest and all that. But why did I think I should be a girl? Why did I want to be a girl so bad? And why couldn't I shake it? And that was the part that bugged me the most. And the thing I revisited so much in these recent years is if this is a mental illness or it's or it's strictly a spiritual illness, uh, Problem, a, a sinful temptation. Right. Why not with good talk therapy or or spiritual care, pastoral care? Why can't gender disordered people shake it? I don't know anyone who ever has. Hmm. And 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 people who don't like the conversation of folks being trans also have to recognize it's not something that you can just get a, put away with good talk therapy or pastoral care. So for me, growing up in the, I was born in 57, growing up in the 60s and 70s and so forth, it just incrementally grew bigger in my life. When Julie and I got married and I told her, and I told my first wife before we got married, in the in the 70s, I'm a transvestite, a word that's rarely used nowadays. I told Julie in 2001, before we married, I was a cross-dresser. She said, I don't know what that is. I'll want you to teach me what you experience. And she asked, "You don't think you'll ever want to become a woman, do you?" And that freaked me out. I said, "I don't want to be a woman. I want to be your husband." Um, but twelve years later, I was just completely falling apart. It had—I don't—and I don't know why. And nobody knows why. And for people from my from my generation, it's so common for them in their forties to fifties. Maybe in their sixties, but forties to fifties, uh, for it to just finally erupt. Is it a middle age thing? Is it there was nothing in me. I never once said, "Gee, I'm getting older. My chances of being a woman are getting slim." No, it was like, "Lord, take this away from me," is all I ever felt about it. But in 2013, it just finally crushed me. And my best way of talking about it is that it's like a slow growing tumor that finally got so big that it it took over my body. That's how I got to where I was. So then I prematurely uh, retired from the ministry. And um, in the second year after I retired from ministry, I transitioned. The next year, you and Dan came to Indy, and we did the interview. That was 2016 and 2017. I had every surgery that a transgender person would need in my situation, male to female, to have that. And then uh, at the end of 2017, the day before Thanksgiving, the end of 2017, I had facial feminization surgery. I had breast implants in one surgery. And... uh, I was over the moon, giddy to be all done. I felt good about now who I was about that. And six weeks after the surgery, I'm sitting there the second week of January 2018 going like, I don't feel female a bit. Mm -hmm. And then that just about destroyed me in the same way the gender dysphoria had in 2013. And I went back to a therapist and finally by... You know, this time, early April, 2018, I was still I was fit to be tied, because you know I had fully transitioned. So why now? And could I trust it would it last? Would I continue to experience myself as a male? And that scared me the most. Because what if I cut my hair and go back to being Greg on social media and just and everything? And then all of a sudden it flips on me. I was scared like crazy. And I was angry and everything you can imagine. But it persisted. And by um, beginning of May, I was almost always living full-time as a guy. I only went as Gina places like church where they knew me as Gina. And it got to be where I couldn't stand to put women's clothes on. They felt so foreign to me. Mm. That is such an intriguing topic if we get around to
1: that. Well, that's was, what we're here for. I mean, this is this yes. is not what we expected, <laughs> yeah. you know. These
0: these guys' clothes and the short hair that I'm now and hair on my arms and all that feels right. But from 2013 to the beginning of 2018, I despised these things and women's clothes and long hair and painted nails, and all that they felt right. What is it about these things? And it wasn't a change of mind. Some of my trans friends were even confused. They says, well, you know, I hope you're happy deciding to be. I'm just, I'm not deciding anything. (laughs) I didn't decide to be a trans woman. I'm not deciding to resume being a guy now. This is happening. Did you notice in in Roller Coaster when I wrote, this is happening to me. I put the word to in italics. This is happening to me.
1: Yeah.
0: Early on, I said to Julie, um, way before I was even going to retire from the ministry, in 2013, I said to Julie, "I said, you know what? I'm going to wind up transitioning, and I'm not going to be able to stop it. I feel like this is happening to me, and it's out of my control." And then that's what happened in 2018 when I was experiencing myself as a guy. This is happening to me. Praise the Lord! It has persisted because it's the thing I always wanted my whole life.
1: Just to, to be, to, just to feel right, you know.
0: Right. To feel right, perfectly said, Jeff, to feel right, because right is whole. And the word whole and the word heal, they all have the same root, the same root as save and savior and salvation. They all have the same root word. Telling Julie in late January, (laughs) we were driving home from my having cataract surgery, and I said, I have something to tell you. She was so angry, she almost couldn't even <laughs> say it. Are you
2: kidding me? Yeah, that's what I was wondering for, you know, and you, Julie, what was that like?
1: Yeah, and you're talking about this is when you were saying you might want to detransition.
2: Yeah. When I said, honey,
0: I said, for the last three weeks, I don't feel female whatsoever. I,
3: I, I think the, the frustration, the anger I felt was not even so much, okay, we we've, we've gone through all this. <laughs> Um, we got to the roller coaster. We finally arrived where we thought things were going to smooth out. And Greg has peace. It's more taking me back to that, that time period where you had that uh, initially after starting HRT, you had that six week of peace and how glorious it felt. And then it crashed. And, and seeing your, your your spouse just go the, the precipice and um, the abyss and not having any hope whatsoever of surviving. being back and can we trusted
0: you know and through those years when i was a pastor she went out to work and then when when i retired and we moved to indianapolis i stayed home she went out to work she had to be concerned that she was going to come home and find me dead yeah Mm -hmm. it was
1: of course yeah it's like i mean in and the reader who pays attention you get through this and you just i can feel for both of you because you know, you're being supportive, Julie, you know, and yet it's not, you can just tell it, it cannot have been easy. No. And then getting through that saying, now we're going to go back. Did, did you ever discuss, I mean, how, how long did it take before you got to the idea that, you know, Greg's just not being, um, indecisive. I mean, was, was it, were you pretty clear on what was going on or were you starting to wonder whether you could trust his uh, perceptions?
3: I did trust his perception completely. Um, good, Greg has good. always been a person who wears his heart on his sleeve. And I'm completely 100%
0: honest. Uh, and I explain it. things thoroughly. I don't try to hide yeah. things. I don't try to shade things. Um,
3: that so helps. Not that I didn't trust him, um, that he was being okay. flippant about it. It's trusting the physiology. So let's go into yeah um, our theory is about why you had that experience yeah oh this is yeah.
1: th- this is really the story this is the story of hormones this is the story about how how people do not understand the endocrine system's ability to change a brain and pr- i mean th- this is really important can we start though with what you think happened in the womb if you go back to pre-born islers what, what do you think is going on mm-hmm. catch us up i know we well, talked I, about this a couple I'll years go ago back
0: to pre yeah. <laughs> and change the whole thing uh-huh. um you know, so my mom was pregnant in '56, '57. She had had two miscarriages immediately before me. Had three kids right before that, and my oldest brother, when he was an infant, had um, had contracted encephalitis and um, whooping cough, and he became severely brain damaged. So my mom was dealing with my oldest brother, who was uh, needed complete care and then my older brother and then my sister and then two miscarriages and then me i don't know cuz i've no way of finding out whether my mom was prescribed diethylstilbestrol but it was so commonly prescribed in the 50s for quite a few years for women who are prone to miscarriage that the odds are really good but but don't lose sight of what was going on with my brother so when when um diethylsybestrol, I need to explain that, is an artificial estrogen. So if my mom were taking that when she's pregnant with me, and I always like to put it this way for folks. Um, if a male baby is forming in the womb and the mom has taken extra estrogen, do you think it makes sense that the baby would be affected? Mm. And that's why I like to talk about fetal alcohol syndrome. And I had a, a young man in my church and, and took him through three years of catechism class who was a fetal alcohol syndrome uh, person and the poor kid just can't concentrate as he grew up he'd been arrested he's not able to hold a marriage he's not and on and on and on and uh, and strictly because he was a fetus uh, in the womb of a mother who drank excessively
1: yeah
0: mm-hmm. so if you're the fetus in the womb of a mother who takes excessive estrogen, do you think it's possible, is it reasonable, that baby would be affected? Yeah. The other part then, with me coming along, my mom recognized she wouldn't be able to take care of my brother Jim and three little kids. So my parents made the decision to have my, Jim, my brother Jim signed over to be a ward of the state mm. so that he could go inst- into an institution and be taken care of by them, because mom would be able to do it. Mom said she felt like the worst parent in the world for doing that. And she was as good a mom as you would ever want to ask for. Uh, Here's the thing though, I've learned about cortisol, the stress hormone. And there's more and more studies finding that women under extreme stress where the cortisol is out of control, too high, whatever, um, they're finding adverse effects on babies. Mm. So did that also play a part? And even if my mom wasn't taking the the diastolibestrol, she was under the greatest stress of her life, perhaps, when she was pregnant with me. In 2013, when I went on hormone replacement therapy, cross-sex hormones, uh, so to suppress my testosterone production and to increase my estrogen, When I hit the eight-week mark, and the doctor said, that's about when you'll start to see uh, effects of it. At the seven-week mark, I started to feel, at the eight-week mark, I'm sitting there going like, I feel like a guy. Mm -hmm. And the second day, I told Julie, and again, wearing women's clothes seemed ridiculous to me. And I, and I go in great detail in the book about this. I call the chapter supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. It's the best word I can think of to express how amazingly wonderful it was. I felt completely like a guy, and for six weeks I did. And the only thing Julie and I could recognize was my testosterone was suppressed and my estrogen raised to a level that finally worked for my brain, for my endocrine system.
1: So wait, yeah. I want to make I want to make sure the listener catches this. So what happened was you 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 were doing uh, hormone replacement therapy, you were increasing your testosterone or you were de- you were prohibiting your you're inhibiting the testosterone and increasing the estrogen, and this made you feel more like a man. Bingo. <laughs> did, did you see that coming? I don't think so
0: yeah I, I i wrote a note put it in an envelope and sealed it for the day it would happen so that julie could read it and prove absolutely not it was the craziest thing on earth so I, um i was glad that i was a month into it before my next doctor's appointment and it lasted for that month and we went back to the doctor and he's like i never had this happen before he goes but if you're happy we'll try to manage it and keep you at the right levels and then it lasted um two more weeks it lasted six weeks but the uh, I was feeling so good that on New Year's Eve, Julie and I were talking about me not retiring. I had told the congregation I was retiring early in 2014. And uh, if this persisted, then I would go back to the Board of Elders and say, hey, I'm feeling good. I hadn't told them, of course, what my struggles were. I gave them a cover story. And on New Year's Day, actually I woke up in the middle of the night and I went, oh my gosh, it's there. Hmm. And when I got up on New Year's Day, it's just like everything was back. And why? And that's the thing why? So I got into a little bit of trouble with my church body, who I started telling pastors and my district president, and that that's all in the book. And I was told I needed to go off the hormones, which I did in February. But I was hurting so badly in the spring in May. I went back on them four weeks after going back on them. Guess what happened? Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. And I thought it was because, well, I'm retiring. My brain is just cool off. That's what I need. I need to retire, get out of the pressure. I love being a pastor.
1: Yeah.
0: And I always thought I wore stress well. But as you as you read the the chapter, tragedy town, we suffered some of the craziest tragedies. In our little tiny village, the ultimate one being a murder suicide, which happened one year before I crashed. And that last year, honest to goodness, I reflect on that. I was an emotional wreck. I would go around muttering to myself, "I can't believe I'm the pastor of somebody who was murdered."
2: Mm-hmm.
0: But anyway, so.
2: But you were told to go. But you were told to go off the hormones. the church told you this?
0: Right. Because it was
2: a, a non-doctor. <laughs> right. medical advice. Gotcha. Right. How,
1: how wild is that? They're telling you to do this because it's bad, but you're then getting back to where they'd rather you be and maybe could have uh, tolerated you being in the pulpit, oh, but you would have had to take uh, estrogen to, to get there. How, uh, how ironic. Hmm.
0: Um, you know, and, and I detail it in the book and I encourage everybody to read that. And when I write about my district president, and I explained at the beginning of that chapter, I do so delicately. The guy I presented with something that was completely new and unusual. He did the best job he could, and I never stopped loving him. Right. Mm -hmm. Right.
1: This is this is yeah. I mean, this is so new for just science in general. It's surprising that it is. I don't know why human beings who are supposed to be scientists and doctors have shied away from getting to this sooner than later um, but certainly culturally until I, I really like what you mentioned with uh D- donahue i'm a little younger than you but i remember that the first time i ever did hear what i thought was an, an interesting and, r- and rational conversation about these issues was actually on donahue and uh <laughs> and uh but the point is that's where you're getting all of your information as a person it's hard enough to be 14 years old just in any context right and now you've got something that the that the medical community the church just doesn't understand what i really like about why your book matters and and anybody who has especially if you have kids that are struggling you're trying to struggle with how to fit all this in with your faith the the part that's really important is not to think that What Greg's experience is the only experience, but rather the complexity of Greg's experience should be a lesson for all of us that there is no simple answer or there is no simple uh, template that everybody falls into. And as long as we think that everybody does fit into the same template, we're going to be extra cruel to people who are already having to go through a lot of stuff. And
2: these I'm, aren't decisions. Yeah, as you said, yeah. you know, it's not you're you know, you're not deciding these things. It's happening to you. And that's what's important, I think, to remember yeah. for folks.
0: Because uh, depression, bipolar usually is the poster child for depression because that has become so better known. Well, enough known. Right so better known by those who don't suffer it. I often make comparisons. People who are bipolar or just suffer just, forgive me, clinical general depression, they don't choose to be that. They don't choose to have the blues, as we said generations ago. They don't want this thing. They would get rid of it if they could simply take it off with a coat. And, And so I use that to help them understand how you can't just get rid of this crazy thing going inside you where you have conflict over your body and your mind, your sex and your gender. A little interlude, um, A, am going to say a guy, he still lives as a guy, but he does YouTube videos as a trans woman. I got connected with late last year, who used to be a Baptist pastor, got out of the ministry because he he, he, he burned out. But anyway, he suffered gender conflict his entire life told his wife before they got married, but they got married. they, They are as traditional conservative and everything about them as can be. But the wife could never grasp what the husband was trying to explain about himself and couldn't put up with anything. And there was no way entertaining her husband transition to female and so forth. Well, through somebody just happened to find my book on Amazon who knows this person, clued him into my book. And when... the wife read my story she was able to say to her husband i understand you know
1: yeah one of the most pastoral things you could do you know and sometimes i wonder and i I really do want to affirm you you know it's like it's got to be hard not doing the thing that you're really good at right i mean you would say you know you were a good pastor
0: people
1: yeah no i'm you you don't have to be shy about that julie knows yeah that was your that was what you did and you did it well and it's it is it is tough to just i mean you know look people do retire and so forth but um but that you tell your story is still pastoral it is, in, in fact, at a, at a magnified, magnified level because of, because of the number of people now that can, can access this stuff. But go, go to, the, go to the, um, the feeling. I just want to make sure that the listener can, can capture that joy that you had when things felt like they were in, in balance.
3: I would love to live a day in your brain dilemma. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah.
0: And that was one of the things that she said that first year of the intense struggle I wish I could live one day in your brain to know what it's like.
1: Yeah.
0: You have this, this struggle. So I felt, I felt free. I felt healed. It seems silly, but everybody can identify with this. When you have a really bad sore throat and it lasts for days and you can never swallow anything, even your favorite food, without it hurting. And you, you can't even imagine. You can't even hardly remember what it was like to swallow without pain. And then your sore throat gets better. And then the next year you're going like, ah, oh.
1: <laughs> that's a good, that is a good, that is a good illustration. I think that I'll take that one. Yeah. So then, so right now, so going back to the, uh, to the story, as we get to 2017, 2018, when are your surgeries?
0: Uh, I had vocal cord surgery in January 2017, bottom surgery or gender affirmation surgery uh, in April 2017, and then November 2017, uh, breast implants and facial feminization surgery.
1: How did that affect, or did it affect, uh, your overall like hormonal balance, uh, or was it just physical? I don't know enough about the science, because you're obviously taking... Uh, the treatment you're taking hormone replacement therapy, but does that did those surgeries affect I'm talking about of course the bottom surgery um, did that have an effect on your way of seeing the world
0: that's the biggest one because you know my my little uh testosterone producing factory was dismantled right. no longer in in business. It had a profound effect on me to to connect the dots a bit better i I waylaid myself I had two more. So I had a total of three of the supercalifragilistic episodes and every one of them was related to my going on and going off hormones. And so that's why I was hormone replacement therapy, I should say. And that's why I was more convinced that it was an endocrine system thing, that it was physical and not mental or spiritual. When I had the bottom surgery, I, I literally bottomed out. About a week after that surgery, I felt asexual. Mm. That was weird. For a number of days, nothing felt. It was like our son had uh, COVID very badly, and he lost his taste and smell for quite a, quite a bit. Yeah. And what a weird thing that was. It was like I lost all my my sexual taste nothing about female or male meant anything to me in those days oh, hmm. just felt, just felt terrible it came back but when it, when it came back i felt content as a woman i was satisfied having had the surgery yet this thing that had happened to me for the last several years changed during my years of transition i experienced what so many trans people will tell you looking at greg's life was like looking at the picture album of somebody else's life hmm. it did, Feel like my life anymore. I didn't feel like I used to be the pastor in Burtville, Michigan. Mm-hmm. It felt terrible because I knew that was me. But now, in the summer of 2017, after having had bottom surgery, I felt like that was me. Mm-hmm. That, that I am Greg, but yet I'm content being Gina. It was just profoundly weird, and yet it was good. So that just pretty much stayed the same. And I balked at getting the final surgery. I balked at the facial surgery. I really didn't want to get the breast implants, but if I was going to live as a trans woman, I'm six one, I'm pretty large. I needed more for my figure's sake. But I balked just something fierce. I had to really had to have folks, I shouldn't say convince me because I wouldn't do it unless I agreed to it. Um, and then it was, as I say, six weeks after the final surgery, when just everything changed and it sure didn't feel like supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, although it was just as profound. I'm just just literally sitting there going like, you know what, the last couple of days have been weird. I feel like a guy. There's an existential question for you. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. Stacy, do you feel <laughs> like a woman? Jeff, do you feel like a man? Yeah. People will say, I do, and other people will say, what does that mean?
1: Right. Well, you don't I mean, maybe you know better than anybody what the difference would be.
0: Right. Well, I know what it means for me, but there's right. a lot. Of, this this trans woman I was talking about a bit ago, she says, what does it mean to feel like a, a woman? I just feel like me. Right. I just feel like me. Then I say, well, then why is it important to you to wear women's clothes? Because I don't feel right in men's clothes. So you feel like a woman, unlike a man, but she won't agree to that. Mm. It's a very, and you can't, you can't say you're wrong. This is how you're experiencing life. It's not, it's like, do you like broccoli? I love it. But if you don't like it, I can't tell you where well, you're wrong for not liking it. You would be, of course, but.
2: <laughs> it was, eat those vegetables.
1: Did you feel like finally, after you detransitioned, how, how long did it take for you to feel like you were kind of maybe comfortable that you were settled in that, that 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 the roller coaster would go away maybe
0: i was so upset the end of april julie finally said you need to go back to a therapist and i just argue with her so much a therapist isn't going to tell me anything i don't already know about myself she goes you gotta go back to a therapist you need help honey she found a psychologist who had no experience with trans people, but he was very experienced, his credentials looked good. So I called him and I explained my situation. He says, I have no experience with trans people. I said, great, then you won't go into this with any preconceived notions. There you go. By the time my third session with him, I was able to finally relax. And then the next session I went to him. So I dressed pretty androgynously with him the first three sessions and the, the next three, I think I had six. I went dressed explicitly like a guy, uh, asked him to call me Greg and 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 like that. And, and I was better. And I felt, and I was finally able to say, it's gonna persist. I feel great. I'm a guy, I'm going to, well, I didn't change it publicly until July. I made it have six months, six months feeling like a guy before I went public about it. Julie, frankly, wanted it to be a year, but I argued you're down to six months. Um, but then, I, but then, when I was able to accept it, then I felt great. Yeah.
1: Some people have said, and it's not a lot, but I, I've had a couple people say to me, "You know, see, uh, you you gave a platform to this conversation, and really, it was all misguided. That obviously, if you know, and but they didn't read the book." Right. Right. Like, see, don't let the kids don't let the kids explore these options, because really, in the end, everybody gets depressed if they transition. Everybody wants to, you know, and then that you would then feed into that. Can you speak to that for anybody who's saying is the Greg Eiler story? Is this a parable of uh, it, refusing to to tinker with hormones? What does your story say to 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 parents that are dealing with um what they should do as loving parents for their children.
0: Hey, let's just keep me out of it. And just All talk. Right. parents who have a child who say, I'm not the boy you think I am. I'm a girl. Right. Or, I'm not a girl. You think I am. I'm a boy. Whether they're three or seven or 13 or whatever, just listen to them. Just listen to them when they're real little. Kids are are trying to find out who they are in the world. What three-year-old knows the difference between boys and girls? They're just beginning to learn the difference. Um, just listen to them and don't do anything dramatic. But just listen to them and 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 ask them helpful questions. Never leading questions to kids, mm-hmm. but open-ended questions. Well, tell me, honey, what are you what are you experiencing? What does it feel like? I don't understand. Can you help me understand? and just listen and don't do anything fast. But if it persists, if it doesn't persist, it's just another thing like their fascination with wanting to um, do this sport or buy this hobby or whatever. But if it persists, then talk to your doctor. Hey, my child is saying these things and I'm concerned it might be a significant thing in their life and and, and just take things gradually. And if it persists, so there's this thing And I put it from the World uh, Professional Association of Transgender Health, WPATH. Um, I put it into the order of PIC, take a pick. If a person is persistent, insistent, and consistent. So that's what parents, that's what everybody should look for. That's what Julie needed to look for in me. Am I persisting in, in what I'm experiencing? Am I insisting that I'm really female or should be? Uh, and am I consistent in what I'm saying? And with kids, it's, it's even better because psh, I was a liar when I was a little kid. Mm-hmm. I told whatever I need to say to my mom to get through that moment, right? <laughs> yeah. But if a child is consistent in what they say, they're telling the truth. If they persist in it, it's serious. It's significant. And if they are insistent, listen to them. Um, that's the thing. Take them seriously. And it it might be a phase and it might pass and it might be that they really are not the boy or the girl fully sex and gender as what you thought they were when they came out of the womb. But go slow. It bothers me so much when anybody goes too fast, and this is on both sides, I've actually known a few of a few trans teenagers who probably went too fast. But then I also know of so many folks who just demonize everything transgender, who just think every transgender person goes too fast. Right. Anybody with any significant thing and unusual, may I call it unusual? Sure. Yeah. It's way more common than it used to be, but it's still unusual, still a very small percentage of the population. Anybody experiencing something unusual should do it methodically. When people wanted to argue about me doing things, whatever I said, look at, we did everything methodically, carefully, slowly, um, step by step by step, and making sure we tested every step along the way to make sure that was the right step to take. that's what parents should do for their kids. But parents take them seriously, listen to them.
2: One of the, yeah, one of the things that, you know, I've heard often with talking with, um, people that are dealing with trans issues and stuff is that as much as like we maybe as other people looking on or wanting to help or whatever we want to see it be almost like this linear linear thing or and even the trans person themselves you know like point a to point b and they like can kind of keep moving forward perhaps or whatever but instead it's a squiggly line right it's it's not linear and just being able to be in touch with exactly what you are feeling at the time is important right and and that it's not—it's—it's going to look a lot messier than it does look like a neat straight line or something, right?
0: I don't know. Have we met any trans person for whom it's been linear? It's—it's mm. it's messy. It's convoluted, and that's part of the argument for folks who are trans deniers. That well, well, look at everything that you know, you're experiencing. You should be feeling good by now. It's like telling somebody whose spouse died. Well, it's been a year. You should be feeling fine by now. Really, right. where are you to tell me how I should be feeling in this? Right. And the transgender experience is, is like that in the way that uh, there's no simple map for this. It's like driving from Indianapolis to Southern California by way of Chile. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: I'm almost I'm sorry that I, you know, brought up what what uh, some negative things that people had said. But I, I wanted to ask it because I want to go the other way. And, and again, affirm you on this. I think that your story isn't that uh, story of uh, see how silly it is to even uh, try to deal with this medically. Rather, it's a parable to me that says if we could all, especially people in religious communities, allow people not to stigmatize the conversation and allow people to explore actually what they feel on different levels of, of hormones, that in the end you might find people getting right back to the place where you wanted them in the first place. But that's not why you are where you are. You are where you are because you have been open to what it was going to take for you to find healing. And, uh, and I think that that's the, that's the joyful story of this. It does not sound like something anybody wants to ask for their own story, right? There's no doubt. But at the same time, again, whether you like it or not, you know, I mean, Jesus said, take this cup from me. Uh, I like how you do, you actually describe yourself more as uh, the John the Baptist which I think is apt right you're like hey people there's something going on here that nobody wants to talk about mm. but I think the answer to that I mean that's how I see it I I see it as a really inspiring story despite all the 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 pain that must have been, you know been involved for you but you know you answer this question in the book but but if you wouldn't mind for for the listeners do you have regrets? I
0: have zero regrets. I I believe firmly That had I not gone through everything, I would never have gotten here. If I had tried to just put up with my gender dysphoria, what hope would I have with anything would be different? Therapy was, I begged my therapist, help me be content living as a guy. And I just kept getting worse. I put myself under the care of pastor after pastor after pastor, including one of the most prominent theologians in the Missouri Synod who contacted me and said, hey, I'd like to help. Well, he had no help. He just wanted me to identify with my baptismal identity. Mm. And I just said, I said I do. I don't deny that. You're not hearing me. That's not the problem. And I just kept getting it. So I believe I had to go through all of that to get here to where now I'm a 63-year-old man who, if you looked at my blood work, would say I have the estrogen and testosterone levels of a 63-year-old woman and I feel completely like a man and a, and a heterosexual cisgender man is how I feel. Mm. So I think I answered the question. Do I yeah. have to as I say in the book, in italics, I wish I hadn't had to go through anything. I wish I hadn't had to put my wife and my family, my poor kids. Their dad is goofy traditional conservative a dad is there is is the face of the earth and a pastor at that, their dad, it freaked them out. And I had to say to people, look, at, if my dad had told me he was transgender, it would have freaked me out. So I get it. But I have no regrets because I believe I had to go through it. And then here's the, the best part of it. The best part is I'm able to tell my story and help others. That's what the Lord drove me into the ministry to be able to preach the word. And I love doing it. And he used me to his glory to do that. And now it's in a different way. But that's what I'm doing still to use my story to help others. And, and the Lord built me to be that kind of a person, a person who's able to teach, who's able to explain, who's not afraid, who actually likes being on stage you know, and not afraid to tell your story. Mm-hmm. Um, in every bit of detail so people can go and how many people have said I read your book and I felt like I was reading my story mm-hmm. thank you for writing it mm-hmm. or that woman you told my husband's story and now I finally understand my husband so Walt Heyer is a Christian man who was a transgender woman for a number of years and um his story is different. He says he gave his heart to Jesus. Uh, he had enough faith to believe that he could be a man. And honestly, and I'm not I'm paraphrasing him, but that's what he attributes to. And I have I still have pieces on my blog uh that apparently I'm not a Christian because I didn't try hard enough. Right. Mm-hmm. I also put myself through a faith healing, um, but I apparently didn't have enough faith and did try hard enough to be a man. He wrote a piece that was published in USA Today online a couple of years ago. I was a transgender woman for 12 years over and I regret all the years I lost. I almost flipped out. And of course now, and he's even been on some Missouri Synod radio programs, even though his theology just doesn't match Lutheran whatsoever, mm. because he's this trans denier. Yeah. All people who expect fierce gender conflict, were molested or something else right i've seen the classic the reason you're gay is because you had daddy issues or you were molested or your mother was absent or name all the reasons right so i wrote a piece for the usa today of course they didn't publish it but i followed all their rules and submitted it i was a transgender woman and i have no regrets I wish a whole bunch of things. Well, I also wish, nothing against you, sweetheart, the love of my life. I wish I were still married to my first wife because people shouldn't be divorced. I wished I could have been the man my first wife needed so that our marriage would still be intact. Praise the Lord. She and I get along great. And us, the four of us, her husband and Julie I, get along marvelously. So we pray that we glorify the Lord in the way we treat each other. But no regrets.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you both so much for coming on the show Absolutely. and for and for carrying this this forward. And uh, if you go to protectyournoggin.org, we'll have uh, links to not only the books, but to uh, some of these articles that Greg has. And they're worth reading. These these are not like these. These are not issues. These are not conversations that are just interesting. These are life and death situations. And I'd say, you know, one of the things that that may is also part of the story is if you you're asking about no regrets i'm very grateful that you're still alive i'm grateful that you didn't get into a spot where you couldn't face what you needed to face and in fact then had to have a a desperation move and that's a that's an unfortunately common thing if we don't treat this lovingly and i would argue very much in a christ-like way people's lives are on the line and so you're doing good work so thank you both so much
0: Luther wants us to be little Christs, right? Yeah. My little Christ, she's sitting right here next to me. Uh the Lord used her to keep me from killing myself. Hey, just one appeal. I need a publisher. Yeah. I'm publishing my books myself. I need a publisher. Somebody help me get a publisher.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's get it going.
0: Somebody promoting me. So there yep, it is. Yeah. Yep thank you a All
1: million right. for asking us to be on oh yeah oh, stay nice. in touch and if you're ever uh, you know now that covid's you know hopefully we're getting this thing uh, settled down if you're ever, uh, at disneyland or something we're just right by there so come say hi stay in touch friends <laughs> great to see you both peace, it's great peace. to
2: see you yes much love And rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you found this show of any help, uh, why not share it with a friend? Until next time, peace upon peace, friends.
1: But he said that wasn't any letter. He said I was going out of my mind. Not going out of your mind. You're slowly and systematically being driven out of your mind. Why? Why? That's because you found this letter no too much.